You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, this is uh, Robert Dagerstiner, Professor of John Marshall Law School, and my show is Do Facts Matter? And, of course, the answer is no if you're a leftist. And so we will continue the theme that I started last week, uh, essentially today, and that's uh, that about progressivism being a modern utopian religion. And uh, but before we do, I, I want to the central tenet of, of progressive is that a centralized leadership, a centralized government, uh, knows better. Anybody else? They can define what a utopian society should be like. And we, of course, again, we started with the French Revolution. Uh, Danton saying he was going to create, uh, you know, perfect equality. And, and equality is something that every utopian society talks about. Equality. By its very nature, of course, people aren't okay. equal. And the only way to get radical equality is radical coercion. Make everybody a slave. Uh, as as the Soviet Union did. So what we have now is uh, a movement that's trying to define a utopian future for the United States and we get all sorts of things going on, which I'll talk about a little bit later on in the program. But the leadership always has a vision of what utopia will be. Danton said, what did Danton say? He said he was prepared to turn the... Hitler was a progressive. He was he was welcomed on the scene by fellow progressives. So he went a little bit uh, I'm really far in terms of his uh, uh, which people should be progressive. And, and very much vetted uh, by U.S. progressives. He was going to form new uh, a new world in Cambodia and kill one third of their people. And you had enough, obviously, uh, in history, uh, in Roma, in, in Africa, you a number of others. And the question is, why the history of utopian, history of progressivism, which is a, just another name for a utopian scheme, why are so many young folks, I have a few students here from John Marshall Law School. By the way, uh, for those of you listening, uh, John Marshall Law School is probably one of the few law schools in, in the country that has uh, a few conservatives, even yeah. one or two Republicans, or law schools have gone, That's really. And, and our student body is mellow, it's more mellow than most, probably more non-political than most. And I got a question for a couple of our students. I have, uh, number one, Mr. and name? Daniel Guo. Daniel Guo. And John Zappi Vangelis Afriulis, probably knows my barber, <laughs> who's also a Greek ancestor. And? Bailey Farner. And with Bailey Farner. And so, uh, what about the students around here? Are there, are there students that are kind of wedded to Bernie? Are there students wedded to a socialist vision? And if so, do they even know what socialism is? I mean, I, I was speaking to my uh, fellow classmates earlier. This is Daniel. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think that most of the student body here, I I don't think they embody anything that you were describing as more uh, as progressive in any sense whatsoever. If anything, most are pretty reasonable in a sense. I think they're they're a little bit left leaning, maybe some um, a little bit more left leaning than others. But I don't think any of them really embody what you were defining as like a progressive, as you uh, stated earlier. Myself, like I, I find myself like, like if you asked me four or five years ago, I, I definitely would say I was in very heavily left center. But I, mean, I guess like as I kind of grow older and kind of see the world as a whole, like I've found myself leaning more and more, especially in recent years, towards um, the right, like more towards like the center. I guess. Um, I guess that's my personal opinion. Well, let me ask a question. Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, and I'm sure there's some. Uh, what are they supporting? What do they think he's going to achieve? Because actually, socialism is, of course, centered, central to a lot of progressive utopian movements. Because socialism is all about everybody being equal, everybody having equal share of everything. You know, after Marx said, "Yeah, capitalism will will create lots and lots of wealth, and they'll create this wealth, but it won't be shared with the proletariat." They will get poorer and poorer as the top level gets richer and richer, which, of course, is not what happened. 
that was what Marx said. So he said, once all this wealth was created, we then create a socialist society. We take all the wealth and redistribute it. And we don't need to get, create more wealth. We've got enough because of all these capitalists created this wealth. Of course, Lenin went further. Uh, it was Marxist Lenin went further. He didn't just want to take the wealth from all the capitalists. He wanted to shoot them all. Uh, but anyway, I don't think some of Bernie's supporters, obviously, if you're reading some of the Internet, uh, probably would go along with Lenin. But uh, what about our students who are for Bernie? Do they understand what who, what they're really for? Do they? I'm not jealous, you think? Well, I, think, I think actually Bailey did. Uh, Bailey? Uh, Bailey? Oh, great. Go ahead. Oh, um, oh we have a Bernie supporter here. Uh, my goodness, uh, he's in a definite minority in this room, yes, but he's yes, a good yes. student and a good guy. And a Go good ahead. Thank you. Um, so, from what I've gathered from the people that support Bernie, um, there are some people that lead really, really far left that that, that you read the uh, commentary on the internet um, that would go with them. Um, but I feel like the majority of Bernie supporters, at, at least the ones that are going to show up and vote, um, are really more democratic. They're not. They're not socialists. They believe in socialist ideals. Some of them, like um, healthcare, and a few other uh, instances. Um, but I don't think that just because you have some socialist uh, ideals doesn't make you a socialist, and it's how you identify. Um, I think that whenever I talk policy with Vangelis, um he's center leaning right. Daniel center leaning left, um, at least from my interpretation. And whenever we talk policy, we really don't ever reach a sale. There's never one thing where we just like, no, I don't understand what you're saying. That's just foolish. Um, and I, I think that whenever you talk more about the so, so actually, what what Bernie claims to be a democratic socialist, which which uh, of course his some of his fathers on the internet said no, he's a real socialist, uh, denied the possibility of of the great enemy of uh, ideas. Oh, wait a minute, we don't have to go all. We can reform and make things easier for the ordinary folks. In fact, that's what what was the beginning of the industrial revolution. It really had it really had begun. There's really a, a radical group, even as the top number one law school, supposedly, and they run out and, and they conservative speakers. Probably from the majority of our student bodies, some are coming back to school. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think that'll so. Hello. All right. Well, we've, we've had these, these, uh, my three student guests here who've talked about uh, John Marshall, the Atlanta's John Marshall Law School, be a little more mellow than a lot, maybe older students that have kind of grown up. So we don't have a socialist movement here, and we don't have people. <coughs> so what is the reaction to some of these Bernie supporters or, or, or students who turn left to what was in the Internet about some of the Bernie Field people saying the gulags were a great idea? You need to re-educate 50 million uh, people. So the, the argument that I have with that is that just because somebody within someone's circle says something doesn't mean that that's what they believe. I mean, there were a lot of people within Trump's circle that was saying that we were going to gather up all the Muslims and put them in camps. So just because one of his people said that doesn't mean that that's actually what he was intending on doing or that's his intention in any, any way, shape, or form. So just because one of Bernie's people or one of his friends said that, Except he hasn't fired anybody. He hasn't released anybody. They're still working right. for him. But he 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 holds very closely the the idea of the freedom of speech. And well, so the thing is, is that there's nothing illegal about what he said, and so there's no grounds to fire him. At least in my knowledge. No, I mean if. if I mean, you can fire anybody. I mean, for instance, Georgia, we're a higher fire state. If I don't like your shoes and you're my employee, I can fire you and you have no recourse. Yeah, but it's also you know? Bernie Sanders who's the employer. No, I, 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 I he doesn't have that kind of. No, for sure, I understand that. But at the same time, you, could you not look at it as you know he's condoning it by allowing them to say that, and there's no repercussion? There's definitely the argument, but if you specifically look at like what has happened in Virginia recently with the with their uh, was it their governor or their mayor that was making those statements on Twitter and stuff about the Second Amendment.
Amendment about how the people were going to come and be violent at the... I mean, that was everybody. It was the media. All, all basically the entire uh, government there is basically run by the Democrats. But, but that's, the, that's the argument there is that people really looked down on the government as they were infringing upon the Second Amendment rights and people's freedom of speech to peaceful assemble. So, like, if Bernie were to fire that guy, there's going to be people saying that, oh, well, he's infringing on First Amendment rights. But if he doesn't, doesn't fire him, there's going to be people saying he's going to Right, but I mean, so, think like, about what he's doing, though. You have people talking about they want to they assemble. This guy's talking about throwing, you know, 15 million Republicans into gulags for re-education. I mean, there's it's kind of a difference of... Well, it's just a difference between... It's, uh, difference between being a democratic socialist and being a Marxist-Leninist. Well, let me thank you for, for coming in, and uh, I'm going to continue the show on, on my theme about uh, progressivism being a religion, utopian religion. And But before I do, I want to just mention, you know, looking to the government to do things, which is, of course, what we've talked about. Uh, Vangelis brought that up about uh, Democrats thinking the government can do things better than anybody else. I'm going to point out something that happened here in Georgia years ago, and it's it's the Anawaki, and you can look it up on the internet. Anawaki, A N N E W A K I E, the Anawaki scandal, and it talks about 1986 and the lawsuit brought by victims. Uh, what victims? Victims of sexual and physical abuse. <laughs> sexual and physical abuse mostly of boys, and mostly the ringleader was the director of the Anawaki Treatment Center, supposedly a treatment center for mostly disturbed boys that started that way, then it expanded to, to, uh, to the girls later on. But physical, the sexual abuse and physical abuse by Louis Petter, who was the uh, director. And this was all a big surprise to the state of Georgia and the insurance company, and they were sued and everything. Well, you know what? This came out in 1970. The state of Georgia, the government, our state of Georgia, did everything they could to cover up what happened in the exposure that was in 1970. In 1970, there was sexual abuse of boys, adolescent boys, by Lewis Petter and some staff members at Anawaki. Their, their, their uh, campus was in Douglasville, was exposed. There even was a hearing conducted by the state of Georgia DFACS. And it turns out, of course, that DFACS knew about Louis Petter's, uh, let's say, willingness to sexually abuse boys because he had worked for them in Savannah before. He, he formed Anawaki. That means in the 60s. Well, that means from the 60s on, the state of Georgia knew something was not quite right. Yet they allowed him to start a so-called treatment center. And in 1970, when the hearing was held, which conclusively showed that he was abusing, sexually abusing the boys, the reaction of the state of Georgia was to cover it up. And the reaction of the state of Georgia since I brought the charges was to get me. If it weren't for the fact that I got a phone call from the assistant attorney general of the state of Georgia saying that they had ended the hearing without a decision that we're going to make a settlement. The settlement was, by the way, to leave Louis Petter in charge for 16 more years. So he had 16 more years of sexually abusing, and he expanded his sexual abuse into physical abuse. So that was the settlement. And part of the deal was the hearing transcripts were going to be sealed by the a judge so that no one could ever access those hearing transcripts. The person who warned me of this did so from a public telephone he said it was too dangerous at that point to call me from his office, the Attorney General's office. And he said, I better get the transcript before they seal it, because they're going to file charges, they're going to try and prevent you from taking the Georgia bar, they can do everything they can to run you out of the state. I said, all right. Luckily, because I had no money, <laughs> I mean, I was lucky to have dinner money uh, in any given day in those days, uh, but I had a very wealthy friend who 
graduated from Columbia College with me. Name was Jerry Miller. True trust baby. Lots of money. I called him up. I said, Jerry, I need $500 now for the transcript. And he, I told him the story. He said, go to your I had the I had the wiring instructions I, from my bank. He said, go to your bank. I'm going to my bank now. I will wire the money immediately. Thank goodness he did. He wired me the 500. I had uh, Rose Higby, uh, uh, where I fellow students, and uh, very, she and I were very good friends. And uh, I gave Rose the 500 bucks and said, get me that transcript. It's always better to have a woman do this if there's going to be any problems. Uh, I've learned that several times, that uh, women can so-so guys. You go to a guy and, and, you know, they get more aggressive. So I said, you go get the transcript for me. I'll wait outside. So she did, and I have that transcript to this day. And that transcript, me having it, protected me from uh, getting charged and be, being prevented to take the Georgia bar. I, I, just as a side look, you know, the uh, Anawaki forces of Anawaki also put drugs in my car to frame me for drug dealing or drug use. They also had me arrested for assault. And when they did that, my reaction to being arrested for assault was, hmm, I never got to do the battery. <laughs> <laughs> Which I had every intention of doing. There's no question about it on that story because those charges were dismissed. Anyway, uh, I just bring that story up because iHeartRadio is actually doing a story on Anawaki 50, 50 years after the story really should have broke. And um, they interviewed me and brought back a lot of not-so-good memories and some, some decent ones. You can look it up on the uh, Internet if you wish. Um, but that's an example. You can't rely on the government. You really can't rely on the government to protect your rights, to protect to protect you. And this is just one example of that. Um, now, going beyond that, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now. What's going on in the... Um, political arena. We have the impeachment. This is all, I'll tie this all into the, my theme of progressivism as being a religion. Um, think about the Kavanaugh hearings. Everyone that I talked to, my Republican friends, were saying, oh, the Democrats are making fools of themselves. Oh, this is wonderful for the Republicans. We're going to do great. I said, no. I said, the Democrats knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly why they were pillaring Kavanaugh. They knew that Kavanaugh never did anything. They knew they had no evidence uh, against Kavanaugh about anything. I mean, and this was 40 years ago they were trying to say somebody may have done as a teenager. Well, he didn't do it, and they knew he didn't do it. And they knew what they were doing. And here's what they were doing. They were telling women, we're on your side no matter what. You are victims of these evil white men, and we are on your side. And we're on your side no matter what. And look what happened in the 2018 elections. So, oh, that's all about health care. Yeah, thank you, uh, John McCain. Yeah, it was about health care, but it was about the Kavanaugh hearings. It was about women saying the Democrat Party will believe them and protect them no matter what. Okay, let's go now. What's going on now? Sure, Congressman Schiff is a tremendous liar. He's a low life. That doesn't make any difference. It's a strictly out of the playbook of Saul Alinsky. How do you win? You dehumanize your opposition. The politics of personal destruction. It makes no difference. This is right out of Saul Alinsky's playbook. It makes no difference how many lies you tell. You tell ten in a row. The idea is to create an aura around your enemy, dehumanize them, create an atmosphere around your enemy that people think, well, maybe this was a lie, and that's a lie, and that's a lie, and that's a lie, but maybe there's some truth there. Maybe he's a bad person after all. So, if you tell enough lies, tell enough stories, this aura of, you're a bad guy, that's frowning Trump now, uh, it works. And a lot of people say, well, we can't have a bad guy in, in the presidency. And you go through anything, anything he's been charged with, which is all blown. I mean, it's incomprehensible to me that a person asking 
for an investigation of corruption should be in, in more trouble than those who participated in the corruption. Shouldn't that be the focus? He didn't ask them to investigate the Bidens. He said, do the right thing, which means continue your investigation of the Bidens, among others, because, after all, Ukraine was a corrupt country, or is a corrupt country. In any case, the Democrats know what they're doing. They're trying to create this aura. And if they can create this aura that Trump's a bad man and that the Republican senators are protecting a bad man, Chuck Schumer intends to take the Senate. So if he keeps the House, takes the Senate, even if he loses the presidency, he's now, Democrats are in the driver's seat. They can stymie Trump anywhere they go. They can come up with three or four more impeachment hearings if they want to. And that's what's going on. So the Republicans who think this is all going to work in the favor of Trump, I hope they're right. But I, but, but don't underestimate the Democrats. They know what they're doing. I mean, why did Nancy Pelosi put Adam Schiff, a known liar, in charge? Because he's a shameless liar. He'll lie about anything. He'll mischaracterize. Look at that email he got claiming that uh, it was an attempt for Trump's people to go see Zelensky, the president, when it wasn't. What the unredacted copy of that email showed clearly they were talking about the head of Versa the, the uh, gas company. The, the, the corrupt gas company, Burisma. The Z just happened to have the same first initial. So what did, what did Schiff do? He sent to Gerald Nadler a redacted copy of the email and implied that this was directed to a meeting with Zelensky, which it was. So anyway, I am not as confident as my Republican colleagues that this is going to work the benefit of the uh, Republicans. <coughs> so so where, where does this all fit in? Let's go back. What the, what the left used to say, the old communists used to say when I was in college and I would go down to Greenwich Village in New York and debate them was any means to noble ends. And the noble ends, of course, a utopian society, a society where people can tell other people whatever gender they want to be. They can, they can, in Canada, if you call a person by a pronoun they don't like, it's a criminal offense. Uh, and you, you have this sort of thing. We're going to have this utopia. Everybody's going to be nice to everybody else, I suppose. Everybody's going to have the same money. Everybody's going to have the same health care. Everybody's going to say this, same that. I mean, Bernie Sanders, when he went to Cuba, praised their health care system, which was terrible. But everybody had it free. Who, who got good health care in, in Cuba? The communist leadership and visitors like Bernie. Where did the best doctors go? Cuba exported the doctors to other countries. He, they rented the doctors so to, to earn hard currency. So the best doctors were sent out of Cuba. For ordinary Cubans, healthcare was not very good. And you can t take that from people who've escaped from Cuba and talked about it. Same way, uh, food was in short supply for a good part of the population in Cuba. But Bernie thought it was all great. After all, food was not expensive because you couldn't get any. Housing was only 5% of our income, which was almost nothing. And in the United States, it was at that time, Bernie claimed it was 40%. It was not that. It was about 30 or 25 or 30%. But in any case, um, this is, this is the way people see utopian society. Complete equality. And you can only do it by coercion. And let's take a look at, uh, what, uh, what, what, what we have in the world today is in Tremendously increasing wealth. Fewer and fewer people are in poverty. Over the last, uh, the, the Linda Gates of the Gates Foundation is very active in combating poverty. And one of the ways she does it is for the Gates Foundation, not to give money to governments, because you give money to governments and the money ends up in a Swiss bank account or K Turks and Caicos or someplace else, but to, but to back entrepreneurs, business people, Someone who wants to start a business and, uh, or wants to grow crops, grants, loans, 
let people develop their economic system from the ground up. That doesn't mean necessarily a complete free market capitalist system. Uh, some of the most successful systems, uh, which, by the way, uh, in, in New Mexico, the Hitas, which were common lands that were owned by the little villages, and they worked fine. They, they governed themselves. You had so many cattle you could put on each land. You had your own private property, and you had grazing rights to these common lands. And, uh, and make, you can grow crops on some of the common lands. And everybody in the village knew what they, how much they could do and how much they couldn't do. But they all, of course, you know, kept the profits for themselves, uh, or, and to spend. Unfortunately, of course, New Mexico, a lot of ranches were developed in New Mexico. And how those ranches got there? A bunch of attorneys from the United States went down there and stole them stole the property. So a lot of the ranches, the biggest ranches in New Mexico, if you go back far enough, you'll see that granddaddy or great-granddaddy or great-great-granddaddy was an attorney. He figured out how to steal the land from the villages. And there was a Western movie with John Wayne called Chisholm, which was based on what happened there, although John Wayne's character wasn't the great hero. John Wayne's character really threw in the towel and moved someplace else to get away from all that uh, stealing and all that uh, warfare. But uh, that was going on in New Mexico at the time. So there are different ways besides free market capitalism to, to, to build a, a, a or to eliminate poverty. And we see that. In 1978, the Chinese government started to introduce at least corporate capitalism, right? maybe not free market. And, and of course, they made their big mistake in, in, their, in real estate. The government decided that they ought to have more buildings built, more malls built, more what have you, and that was a mistake. So free market capitalism really works better than corporate capitalism. But anyway, China has become a, an economic power by giving up socialism, at least to an extent. India gave up socialism in 1991. And since then, Indian, the Indian economy has been growing by leaps and bounds. Yes, it's increased inequality. There's no question that inequality. But the poorest folks in India, by and large, are better off now than they were in 1991. Is there more inequality? Yes. Is that causing a problem for the Modi government? Yes. But rising expectations always cause problems. If you take a look at the wealth of the world, there's an interesting book called Bourgeois, it's right in the back there, Bourgeois Dignity. The book was written by an economic historian who calls himself Deidre McCloskey. Um, Yes, it's a male who wears a dress. So Deidre McCloskey has written a wonderful book about how the world has created wealth going from what she projects is an average in today's dollars living on $3 a day to living $50 a day or $100 a day or $300 a day. There's 16 times uh, the original uh, everybody was poor, in other words. Virtually everybody was poor. Now it's not true. As I started to say, the Gates Foundation say that uh, about a billion people have come out of poverty in the last 20 years. And in fact, uh, I haven't looked at the chart, but uh, Linda Gates indicated that uh, only a few countries would remain, people remain in poverty, including Bangladesh, was one of the countries she mentioned, as not advancing up, up the uh, level of uh, wealth. But, but what does this all mean? It means that socialism doesn't work because none of these countries are adopting socialism. They're moving away from socialism. They're moving away from radical economic equality. At, and the expense, yeah, there's one of the things that, that happens is increasing economic inequality. But that's a price one pays for spreading the wealth around. Socialists don't think so. 
But now we go and we say, well, what's going on? You know that progressivism is a religion because people who oppose them are always evil. Conservatives say, well, we think the progressives and the liberals are wrong. The progressives say the conservatives are evil. They go to the gulags, got to be re-educated. And in the extent they got to be shot. That's what they say. And that's typical of a religion. If you're evil, you're a heretic. And we conservatives, we free market types, are heretics. And heretics get burned at the stake for a while there, right? We had a long history, no, not that long, it's not as long as people say, well, there's a history of a while. People burned at the stake because they were heretics. Well, we conservatives are heretics. We need to be burned at the stake. And progressivism has its own it's a religion because a lot of what they believe is on, taken on faith. If you take Christianity, what's taken on faith is a resurrection. It can't be proven, it can't be disproven. But Christians have never, at least for long, objected to facts. People forget that every university, maybe one exception in the Middle Ages, was created by Christian church. Then and was peopled by priests. Natural philosophy, which is what was taught there, was all about biology and, and uh, chemistry. And so, I mean, Isaac Newton was a priest, for peace sakes. So, uh, University of Paris, Bologna, all these, all these things were, were, faculty were priests. So, the, the, the church, the Christian church, always welcomed new knowledge. And, like it, even Galileo, the story of Galileo is not told properly. Uh, all the Pope asked Galileo to do was have support for his positions and, and not publicize them until he can support them. And the Galileo, who was protected by the Pope, uh, double-crossed him. And the people who were out to get Galileo was not the church, was his fellow professors, because he was so arrogant and unpleasant. They didn't like him. But in any case, what do the progressives say? Progressives say that anyone who believes that a person with a penis can say he's a woman, and and and, and you and you don't think that person has got some mental problems, is out of their minds. You can't choose your own gender. You're male or you're female. There's a very few people who are uh, hermaphrodite. Uh, who have too many chromosomes. But if you're XY, you're a male. If you're XX, you're a female. And no matter what you say, that's what you are. And I'm not talking about people with same-sex attraction. People with same-sex attraction probably have a genetic base. There's a genetic base there somewhere. Uh, there's no gay gene, but the way genes interact with each other, interact with the environment, not talking about those. I'm talking about those who think they can get hormonal treatment, which is terribly affects their health. The American uh, 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 Johns Hopkins University won't do sex change operations anymore because of the devastating effect on health. The American Heart Association recommends highly against uh, hormonal treatment because of how detrimental to health it is. And it's up to 80% of those who get sex change treatments, whether it's hormonal or, or the operation, regret it as they get older. And there's a whole website of people who regret it and, 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 and go with each other. So it, these people need to have some psychological assistance. They don't need to have sex change operations. They don't need to have hormonal treatments which wreck their health. But for a progressive, that's what they need. So a progressive will believe anything, apparently. Let me read you some of this stuff from Lenin, because I think that the progressive movement is very Leninist. Lenin's revolutionary goal is to eliminate the capitalist society and all institutions that resemble it. Lenin wrote that the first task of revolutionary terror, yes, Lenin originated the idea of the Red Terror, is to cleanse of any harmful fleas 
the damned capitalist societies. Disinfection of this bourgeois swamp requires the use of systematic coercion on an entire class and its accomplices, a cruel, ruthless, but absolutely necessary operation. Now, who are these terrible people that they're talking about? Who are they? Big capitalists would make lots of money? Well, maybe. Sure, we want to get rid of them. We want to tax their wealth away. We want to maybe shoot them if we have to. But we're really talking about, and I'll give you some more of this, the petty bourgeois. And what are the petty bourgeois in socialist jargon, Leninist jargon? They're the small businessmen. They're the farmers who produce enough food so they can sell it to others. The very act of selling this to others is a violation of Marxist-Leninism. And one of the first things Lenin did when he took over the Soviet Union, then Russia turned it into the Soviet Union, was to collectivize the farms. Whereupon, Russia had a massive famine. A famine that was leading to cannibalism. Whereupon, Lenin came up with the new economic policy. What was the new economic policy? Reinstated the petty bourgeois and the farmland. Reinstated the farmers who could have their own land, could make surplus food and sell it to others. And that ended the famine. If he hadn't ended the famine the farmers probably would have revolted and ended the communist dictatorship. So he had the new economic policy, which was a return to free market on the level of farm products, on the level of farming. What was one of the things Stalin, a true believer, did? These people, these farmers who were supplying food and supplying food for the cities. I mean, the answer is Russia at that time, Soviet Union at that time, was producing plain food. What did Stalin do? These people were called kulaks. He shot them. He had something like 40,000 successful farmers shot. His own people. Whereupon, Russia had a famine. And what saved Russia and what saved the Stalinist regime was Hitler attacking. Then patriotism, let's all get together and fight it out. Well, so... Progressives, whether Mussolini, Hitler, Pol Pot, all of them were progressives. Danton, Robespierre. And remember, before uh, secular progressivism, which happened in the um, French Revolution, was the first secular utopian movement, before that, utopian movements were really Christian, were heretical Christians. Heaven on earth, uh, Jesus taught there'd be no heaven in this world. Heaven was to come in the, in the afterworld. But uh, a lot of Christians sex, had it in Switzerland, they had it in this country. Uh, the first two years of the pilgrims, which had a, a, a true communism, everything was owned by everybody uh, together, they, Muslims, a lot of them starved to death. When Bradford finally said, none of this garbage, you don't work, you don't eat, you can own your own property, the, the uh, colony prospered. Uh, so utopianism is based on a misreading, this idea that you can create a new man, which, of course, people have thrown, but it hasn't worked uh, many, many years. Um, there's uh, some interesting stuff here. We must encourage the energy and mass character of, of the era against the counter-revolutionaries. We must act with all energy. Mass searches Execution for stealing arms. Mass distribution, uh, the deportation of Mensheviks. Mensheviks were lefties, were socialists, democratic socialists. And there's Lenin saying, gotta get rid of them, we gotta get rid of those reformers and unreliables, because the Mensheviks were unreliable. They wouldn't support the dictatorship of the proletariat. Essential to crush the upright, uh, with great energy, any uprising with great energy, speed, and ruthlessness. Essential to suppress the Kulak extortioners mercilessly. Essential to combine ruthless suppression of the Kulak left socialist revolutionary. Holy cow. Those were supposed to be his enemy. I mean, his, uh, his, his, uh, with him. His, not his enemies. They're supposedly people who worked with him. His allies. No, kill him. 
Lenin stated that the Bolsheviks must be prepared for the day in which they would defend the achievements of the dictatorship of the proletariat using the most radical and effective means of revolutionary struggle, Red Terror. And that, if you take a look at the left in this country, the Antifa movement, Antifa movement, the uh, some elements of uh, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, and, and there's five or six other movements in this country, and they all, in, in those areas, advocate violence, advocate, hey, look, they don't let conservatives speak on college campuses. They vandalize banks. They're, they're Marxists, all right, but they're Lenin, the Marxist Leninists. And that's what's, that's what, that has become the activist wing of the left wing movement are these violent, uh, organizations. David Horowitz of the Freedom Foundation, uh, he has listed all of these violent organizations which communicate with each other and, and essentially funded by some of the left-wing billionaires like George Soros. Directly or indirectly, they are funded. And someone says, oh, well, billionaires, you know, they're all Republicans. No. Look, go to the Internet. There's a lot of stuff available on the Internet. If you take a look at the 22 biggest billionaires in this country, I don't mean people just have $1 billion. I mean people have multiple billions. There's 22 of them, all right? Thirteen are Democrats. Nine are Republicans. Take a look at the PACs, political action committees, the last election. The ten political action committees who put most money into the campaigns. Seven out of ten Democrat. Two Republican. And one split their money because they were just supporting any veterans who wanted to run for political office, whether Democrat or Republican. This, this pact felt that veterans should, you know, should be more veterans in Congress. So that was one. Two Republicans, seven Democrats. And none, and the two Republicans did not include, did not include the NRA, National Rifle Association. They were not in the top ten. So we're facing a utopian movement, and these utopian movements always have a violent wing. I mean, Hitler had his brown shirts. Uh, Mussolini had his, uh, I guess, what black shirts and Mussolini and, and Pol Pot has his 13 and 14 year olds killing fellow Cambodians. And then we, of course, had, uh, to this day, there's a part of France where, uh, which didn't, which was loyal to the king, where the forces of the republic, forces of the revolution were sent down there. This is the, the, Vendée part of France, and they slaughtered, killed, and raped in the name of the Republic, in the name of equality. Yeah. Loyal to the king, got you killed. In, in, not if you're an aristocrat, just for an ordinary person. Uh, here's what the Lenin talked about in 1922. The main idea of, the, of this thesis will explain. The substance, this is a quote, the substance of terror is its necessity and limits and provides justification for it. This was in the uh, book of the collected, uh, uh, collected works of Lenin. The courts must not deter terror or ban terror, but must formulate the motives underlying it, legalize it as a principle plainly formulated in the broadest possible manner. For only revolutionary law and revolutionary experience can more or less widely determine the limits within which it should be applied. Now, I say, well, what is, what is Professor D'Agostino doing quoting from Lenin? Wait, wait, it's not there. I mean, Bernie's not a Leninist. Yeah, that's true. Maybe. But Bernie's supply, uh, supporters, some of them certainly think he is, certainly think he's willing to use this, gulags, re-education camps, and that sort of thing. He certainly thinks so. And certainly there are enough groups in this country now, a lot of them on the campuses, a lot of them are professors who think so. Well, David, are you there? 
believe that we have had a uh, a show that's worth something and uh, indicates some some of the things that uh, I'm concerned about, and uh, and I think the American people should be concerned about. But I want to thank my three guests for coming to the show and listening to the. Uh, Robert, you got about uh, seven minutes. Oh, okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, but I want to thank uh, my three guests, um, students at John Marshall Law School, uh, which is a, I, I've had, I've been here a number of years. I've been here for, since 1995. When I came in as, um, as I used to joke, I came in with the official title of associate dean. My real title was czar. And, yeah. <laughs> because, we had a president at that time, and we had a dean at that time. I made it plain to both the president and the dean that I was in charge. That I don't care what my title was, they were doing what I told them to do. Uh, we had to, at that time, we were not accredited, not ABA accredited, we were Georgia accredited. My job was to get the school ABA accredited. And there was a lot of work to do, including getting rid of the then president, which took me three years to do, by the way. He kept being protected by the board. Board felt kind of boiled them, so I had to throw them out. But the point is, we didn't need the government to throw them out. We just did it ourselves. We reformed the school ourselves. Uh, I am uh, very, very. When I was interviewed about Anna Wakey by iHeartRadio, I said one of the things that uh, that my experience with Anna Wakey did was convince me that relying on the government is a big mistake. The government isn't your friend. There's too much money sloshing around in the government. So let's go back to this progressive movement. If you take a look at the people supporting this, especially the wealthy folks supporting this, the directly or indirectly, all of them are either supported by or protected by the government. Remember, Obama, in the Obama administration, it was really corporate capitalist. It was not free market capitalist. And they were picking winners and losers. That's part of the progressive movement. We know at, at the center, we know we are the leaders, we're the experts, we're the compassionate ones. We know who to pick. And the Obama administration, I think, was 36 different green companies that they supported with grants and with guaranteed investments. <clears throat> and what was common to all of these companies picked by the government as winners, green companies, solar companies, wind companies, what was common to, to all, almost all of them except for one, I think, was they all failed and they were all backed by Democratic campaign contributors and the Obama administration stepped in and made most of them whole by subordinating the repayment of grants to their investments. This is what's going to happen, because when you get a central government deciding winners and losers, what you get is crony capitalism. You go from free market capitalism to corporate capitalism to crony capitalism. Because, as Hitler said, when he was asked early on whether he was a socialist or not, he said, of course I'm a socialist. He said, well, Lenin in Russia, you know, Soviet Union had nationalized all the industries. So why aren't you nationalizing everything, control everything by the government? He said, I don't have to do that, he said. This is directly from, from uh, Hitler's speech or Hitler interview. As long as the big companies do what I tell them to do, I can leave the people who know how to run the companies in charge. That was, that's, there's a statement of essentially, as Mussolini said about uh, economics, uh, Mussolini was a corporatist, corporate capitalist, corporate. He called his economic theory fascism. Fascism became related to other things, cultural and social later on, but initially it was merely uh, economic theory. As he said, well, this, this theory, this kind of corporatism, what I call fascism, is the halfway house to socialism. This is, this is the halfway. This is a way we can go halfway. And as Hitler said, we keep the 
people in charge who will do what we say and know how to run the company instead of putting a bunch of lackeys in charge the way Lenin did and, and wrecked the economy. So, so progressive is all about faith that a bunch of experts can run the economy and can run the country. They don't need... Look at Adam Schiff's head on the floor of the Senate. Uh, he said, well, you know, we're afraid that if we don't get rid of Trump, that the, the electorate will re-elect him. That's essentially what he said. They don't know what they're doing. We can't let them re-elect him. We have to get rid of him. And that's, and look at his, look at what he said. That's what he said. So, this is a true progressive. We are the experts. We know what to do. We know how to run everything. And you gotta all listen to us. And the entire history of the world is when Progressives, whether they call themselves socialists or, or go by another utopian name, whenever they impose a, a, a centralized authority, centralized decision making, centralized control, it fails. It's failed everywhere, and it's, it's failing in Venezuela now, and it's starting to fail in the Union of South Africa, which has taken a left turn in the last election. The the uh, Multi, multi-racial party, the free market party lost that election. They were hoping to win. They had a really young, really good guy as a leader, but, uh, people voted for the, to, on a left turn. And we'll see what that does to the University of South Africa. Look what, look what happened to Rhodesia when it became Zimbabwe and Mugabe ran it. Rhodesia used to export agricultural products to all of Africa. By the time Mugabe got through with it, People were starving in Rhodesia, in former Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Centralized control. And that's what the progressives are for. Centralized control. That's what you want. And I think, I'm a pessimist. I think sooner or later the American people will experiment with that. Because why not? We're so wealthy right now. We have so much money sloshing around. We might as well try something different just for the excitement. I mean, I mean, what what some philosopher says, prosperity makes people crazy, and I think there's a lot of truth to that because anyone following Bernie Sanders and 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 buying into the progressive nonsense, in a sense, is crazy. Okay, no, people Bob. can't change their gender. No, the government can't control everything efficiently. No five experts in a room are not more intelligent than five or six million people making economic decisions every hour or so. That's the, what the invisible hand is all about. Well, the only way that you can explain what progressives believe is that it's their new religion. They're post-Christian or anti-Christian, post-Jewish or anti-Jewish. They have their own religion that substitutes for that because only faith can explain why they think centralized, coercive government would be better than a republic, or better than a, demo- a truly democratic society. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.